Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. How do you cultivate a holistic worldview in the next generation? Well, that's a conversation I'm excited to have with my friend, Dr. Nathan Finn, and talking about his contribution to our new book, Know, Be, Live, a 360-degree approach to discipleship in a post-Christian era, edited by John Basie. And this really encapsulates what is Gen Z facing? How are they navigating this world? How can we better disciple them? But I want to share a little bit about Dr. Nathan Finn. And Dr. Nathan Finn is the provost and dean of the university faculty at North Greenville University in Tigerville, South Carolina. He teaches courses in the areas of theology and church history and leadership, the author editor of 10 books, and has written over 50 book chapters, journal articles, and other scholarly and semi-scholarly essays. He's also an ordained minister who preaches regularly in local congregations. Uh, Nathan has been married to Leah for over 20 years and is the father of four children. He enjoys drinking coffee, playing golf, hiking, and rooting for the Atlanta Braves. So, Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much for the opportunity to have the conversation today. Absolutely. So, obviously, you've written on these topics, but you get to work with students every day, and that's one of the defining characteristics of this volume, No Be Live, that we've published with Impact 360 Institute, talking about what does it look like to disciple the next generation. And so share just a little bit about what drives you to do what you get to do every day and and some of the opportunities and challenges that you personally see facing teenagers and Gen Z today. So what really drives me in my own ministry towards Gen Z is sort of a personal application of what has become uh, North Greenville University's mission statement which is to cultivate transformational leaders for church and society. That's what I've been passionate about for years. It's the reason I'm involved in Christian higher education, uh, as well as whatever local church ministry opportunities uh, the Lord opens up. And so much of my ministry is on really training young Christian men and women to be Christ-centered leaders in whatever context they find themselves whether that's as a public school teacher or whether that's a pastor or whether that's a working academic or a business person or a stay-at-home mom. Uh, so to really help them to cultivate Christian orthodoxy, mission commitment, and servant leadership in as many different types of students as we possibly can. And, and the challenge that I see to that on a regular basis at my university, as I interact with students at other universities sometimes, even in local churches, is that we have a generation of young people who are zealous for the Lord on one level, but they are deeply confused about what it means to think Christianly and live Christianly in a consistent way. And so the challenge for all of us who are ministering to Gen Z and whatever type of ministry that is is to really help them in a holistic way to think rightly about God and His world for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. And to the degree we can do that, I think the Lord will honor that and help us to cultivate those young people to be transformational leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so critical uh, because we're all in this mission together of equipping and discipling the next generation. 
And before we get to some of those worldview assumptions that kind of came out through the research that we did with the Barna Group and some of those things that shape this chapter and kind of your, your, your approach to it, the title of your chapter in particular that you contributed to this book is Discipleship for a Digital Generation, Cultivating a Holistic Worldview Through a Synthesis of Truth, Narrative, and the Affections. And we'll come back and unpack the particular parts of that in just a minute. But what are some of these worldview assumptions that are kind of operating in the background that were kind of surfaced in this Gen Z research that we did with the Barna Group and that you kind of highlight and kind of categorize as, as we kind of get this chapter going? I think that there's a number of worldview assumptions that we see as kind of the implicit mental scaffolding, if you will, of most of these young people in Gen Z. And, and it's not that all of them check these boxes, if you will, but these are the general patterns that we see. I mean, what stands out the most, and it's the reason that I included digital generation uh, in the title of the chapter, is just the way that screens are second nature to Generation Z. And so in the same way that the fish famously doesn't know he's in the water, it's just his context, young people don't realize that there was a time where we weren't all surrounded by screens all the time regularly taking in this sort of content. It's what they've always known, and it impacts just the way that they think about the world. Uh, So that's one that really, really stands out. Uh, And then just living in, a, in many ways, a post-Christian world, the world that I grew up in, uh, there were certainly all kinds of post-Christian and anti-Christian elements of that world. There was still such a deep memory, if, if maybe that's the right word, of the Christian worldview, or there were certain Christian reflexes that you still found in many parts of culture. And that's just completely changed in much of the country and is continuing to change. Even those places where you find pockets of the sort of memory and reflex, it's becoming less and less the case. We're just increasingly in a post-Christian and maybe even uh, anti-Christian world. And then there's just this whole tendency among Generation Z to want safety and security and and to feel like the world is not as scary as they probably think it is. I see that all the time with students, whether it's something as practical as them being fearful about getting a driver's license because they don't want the responsibility of driving because they might get hurt, as it is to uh, the stuff that they have to deal with that, that maybe I didn't have to deal with when I was their age, like worrying about the real danger of a school shooting or whatever the case might be. But there's just a sense in which they seem to live in more fear uh, than maybe previous generations did, uh, at least if you don't account for something like a time of war or something like that. And then the pandemic has only increased that fearfulness. And then they really love diversity. And at their best, they love a healthy type of diversity that doesn't denigrate anybody because of the way they look or where they come from or their accent or uh, what their personal beliefs may be. Uh, At their worst, they like diversity uh, sort of along the terms of the wrong sort of pluralism, where there's not really any acceptance of some things being true and some things being false, but what's, I'm going to lean into my truth. And then most of the young people I work with are Christians. They're very tempted by that. Uh, sort of wrong-headed approach to diversity that says, I'm okay and you're okay, and I'm going to check all these boxes that are very orthodox, faithful boxes, but if, but if you don't check all those, that's okay. 
you be you, and, and I'm just going to encourage you to be you. And I think that's a, a real challenge that those of us who work with Generation Z are going to have to navigate is helping them to, again, think and live consistently and help them to understand mm-hmm. when they're being discipled by the culture and its assumptions and when they're being discipled by the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Yeah, you know, I think those are those are really powerful insights that you shared. And as my friend David Kenneman, the president of the Barna Group, likes to say, screens disciple. And I think that's exactly right, because I think every day those assumptions, whether kind of passively or actively, they're kind of becoming more entrenched in the next generation and how they view the world. And as you mentioned, only 4% of Gen Z has a biblical worldview, even thinly defined, you know, in what those kind of core, core commitments might be in regards to that. And then this, you know, the desire for safety, as you pointed out, has only become probably intensified even in recent days with something even like Afghanistan and what's going on there and natural disasters and then the pandemic and all these things like that. And so there's a lot of things that are shaping them in how they view the world and that's the first step, right? Because if, if we don't understand kind of where they're coming from, then it's going to be really hard to help equip them and serve them and care for them in the ways that they need to be to be propelled toward their mission, right? Which is to not only to be a disciple, but go make disciples. And so I really appreciate kind of how you highlighted that. One of the things, and I know you, you teach history, you teach worldview, you teach theology, you teach these different things, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, um, we haven't defined it yet, but, but what is a worldview, and maybe tell a, a short part of that story of how that came to be, but then why do you kind of parse out kind of three different approaches or what that synthesis or bringing those together looks like and why that's an important part of how we need to approach discipleship for Gen Z? Sure. So... The idea of worldview as uh, not just something that is assumed, but something that we talk about really comes about in the 19th century. And all the different thinkers, whether they were German philosophers or whether they were theologians in the English-speaking world, what they were really trying to get at were those baseline mental assumptions, uh, the, the mental scaffolding that's always there Uh, whether we realize it or not, that influences the way that we interpret everything around us. And then that's one of the reasons why when Christian thinkers talk about worldview, even before the language of worldview was there, uh, they often use the analogy of lenses, like eyeglasses, for example. And it's the lens through which we see everything. And if there's something wrong with that lens, if there's a smudge on it, or if it's uh, distorted in some way, or if it's the wrong prescription, then uh, then you're not going to see everything the way it is intended to be seen. So having a Christian worldview, if you will, is about having the right set of lenses that have the right prescription, and there's nothing wonky about them. And, and that allows you to see things as they really are. Not that we'll ever do that, this side of our final glorification, but to increasingly see things as they really are so that we can live faithfully and so that we can think faithfully. And and the reason that I really drill down into these three different types of biblical worldview thinking is because in the world of those who are writing or teaching about worldview, there's at least three different approaches. And I don't think there are three 
wholly different approaches. Like they don't take any account for the other approaches, but they're really more like three tendencies or three default factory settings when it comes to Christian worldview. So you've got the more philosophical, propositional-minded, and they're really interested in answering the right questions and asking the right questions and dealing with those specific challenges that come. So Christian apologetics is very much a part of this tradition, uh, especially in over the last century or so. And then you've got the, the biblical narrative camp, and they're more interested in sort of how do we read the Bible and how does the Christian worldview arise out of that grand biblical narrative. And, and they're, they're not against propositions. And then the propositional folks all care deeply about what Scripture says and even the biblical worldview, but, but they sort of begin in different places, even if they end up in a very similar place. And then more recently, we've had folks, James K.A. Smith being the most notable, who's really trying to recover classical virtue ethics and the importance of thinking of us not just as thinking creatures, but as desiring creatures. And in what way should we, uh, Smith would say, perhaps talk a little bit less about propositions and, and narrative and a little bit more about ethics and virtue. Uh, it's not clear whether he's overcorrecting or not, and there's a debate about that. But at the very least, most people would agree that there needs to be a close connection between the way we think and the way we live. And so what I'm trying to get at with a synthetic view is just recognizing that, that all three of these things are far more closely connected in our experience than sometimes would seem to be the case if we're just reading a book by somebody who's kind of advocating for their particular preferences or their particular way of understanding things. And again, all these folks agree with each other on the most important stuff, but you write out of your convictions, and then you write out of your training, and then you speak out of the way that you've traditionally thought about things. And so I'm trying to just come in and say all of this is important. And what we really need, if I can use a sports analogy, is a utility player sort of approach that recognizes sometimes when we're dealing with someone in Gen Z, they are wrong on the facts. And when they're wrong on the facts, a very uh, propositional approach to worldview helps them get those facts straight. And some of them are just clueless about the story of their life and the story of the world that they live in, and, and they don't understand that, and they're biblically illiterate. And when that's the case, we need to reinforce with them what the Bible says about the world. And uh, N.T. Wright has said that the Bible gives us the true story of the whole world, and I, I love that quote. And I think that's so true. And, and so we, we want to help them to inhabit a better story and, and to reframe their story within the context of that story. And then some of them may have mostly right propositions and a, a mostly right sort of grand narrative of the world, but there's just frankly inconsistencies between what they believe and, and the things that they love and, and how they respond to those loves and the idols that they're battling. And, and we need to challenge them in a way that says, if you believe this stuff, then you need to live that out. You need to love differently. You need to live differently. You need to let go of some of those idols, whether they're personally tied up with your own unique circumstances or whether they're kind of the idols of the age with Gen Z. You need to let go of some of those idols, and you need to become a, a better lover of yourself in the right way 
a better lover of God and a better lover of neighbor. And so to me, it's really about meeting different folks where they are, seeing where they seem to be struggling or weak or confused. And and whatever foot I put forward is really an act of contextualization to say, this is where this person is. I want them to care about all three of these things, but what I lead with is largely going to depend upon their circumstances and their struggles. And that's really helpful. And two things I just want to highlight and summarize. And again, we're talking to Dr. Nathan Finn. We're talking about his chapter contribution to the brand new book, Know, Be, Live, A 360-Degree Approach to Discipleship in a Post-Christian Era. But the, the summary points I want to make sure that no one misses is that you're seeing these as complementary rather than competing. That's the first thing. Absolutely. Second, that these three almost like chords intertwined, you know, recalling the image from Ecclesiastes that they're stronger together, you know, there is truth, right? We've got to get the facts straight, as you say. We've got to tell a better story, and we've got to understand that it, that it shapes us in, in what we care about and what we love. And all those three things are part of what it means to cultivate a biblical worldview. And so I think understanding that now people are going, okay, if I'm a mom, I'm a dad, you know, a grandparent, I'm a teacher, educator, whatever, youth pastor, wherever I'm coming from, engaging the next generation, what practically does this look like? So, so Nathan, tell me what it would look like for you to interact or as you've interacted with students, where maybe you've led with one approach rather than the other, or one emphasis rather than another on a, on a real life concrete issue that they're dealing with in day-to-day life or from the culture or something like that. So kind of take those, take that broad approach and now help people apply it to something concrete so they can see how that might work as they disciple a teenager today or engage them in the classroom or in the church or wherever that might be. So I, can, I think I can give two examples that are recurring examples in, uh, in my particular context. Again, dealing primarily with young people who are Christians or at the very least would sincerely believe themselves to be Christians, and they have a Christian background, if you will. So where I'm dealing with students regularly in a propositional sort of way, in a getting the facts straight sort of way, is whenever it comes to uh, what I'm just going to broadly call debates about gender and sexuality, I am all the time talking with students who, if we're talking about God, man, sin, and Christ— they're going to check the right boxes. These aren't students who are struggling with God being the creator of heaven and earth. These aren't students who are struggling with substitutionary atonement or justification by faith alone, but they come pretty close to taking an I'm okay, you're okay stance when it comes to what it means to be male and female, what it means to have sexual attraction to the opposite sex versus the same sex. And so when I'm dealing with any of those sorts of questions, I am all the time trying to challenge their propositions. Why do you believe that? Do you see how this is inconsistent with everything else that you're saying? And so I have a friend who's an ethicist, and I remember him saying several years ago, we have a generation of young people that in many ways are more pro-life than their parents, but they're sexual libertines. And in my experience, there's a lot of truth to that. So it's just a regular conversation with students where we're having to say, I I know what you're hearing out there, but let's look at the scripture. And often let's look at the science 
and see how it's going to affirm what we think of, for lack of a better phrase, as a traditional understanding of gender roles and a a traditional biblical understanding of gender and sexuality. And so that's a very frequent one when it comes to more of a propositional, philosophical sort of approach. When it comes to narrative, I'm regularly dealing with that whenever it comes to students' mental health struggles. So many students in this generation, I I think largely because of screens, though not exclusively because of that, there just seems to be more pronounced struggles with anxiety, with trust issues, uh, and, and a variety of other things as well. And so these students, they feel like their stories don't matter or that their stories are are preordained as bad stories and that they're defined by their worst struggles and their worst moments. And in those cases, I want to come alongside them and I want to say, no, there's a better story. This is the story of what God is doing in the world. This is what that story means for each and every one of us. And this is what that story means for you. And so even if this thing that you've battled for as long as, as you can remember and that sometimes is, is trying to steal your joy, you are not defined by that. It's a real part of who you are, and you might struggle with it till the day you die, but you need to frame that in the context of, of this better story. And so dealing with uh, just, I'm not a mental health expert, but just encouraging students in that and trying to get them in touch with the right sort of professionals, especially professionals who understand a biblical worldview. Uh, you know, we, we want them to see that this is the story that you're being called up in. This story is your story, and, and, and you're not defined by your temptations or your struggles or your sicknesses. And then whenever it comes to the matters of desire And when it comes to the matter of affections, I think probably the most common one that I'm dealing with is just consumption. These young folks are so materialistic. They're so FOMO, uh, fear of missing out. Uh, You know, YOLO, you only live once. And, And they just sort of move from possession to possession or experience to experience or adventure to adventure. And life is about those highs that come from those things. And and I'm trying to say to them, there's something about your desiring that's a little bit off. Many of those things that you're interested in that you're doing, they're good things. And I do some of those same things and enjoy some of those same things. And sometimes I'm even tempted by some of the same things that aren't good or they're in excess. But we have to remember that one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control and that most idols in this world aren't little wooden statues to false gods, but they are loving the right things in the wrong way. And and as we grow in our faith and, and as we recalibrate the way that we think about things, we also have to love in a way that is more consistently with Scripture. We have to know when to say no to that good thing. We have to know whenever we're going to follow through on the commitments that we're making. We have to understand that life isn't just about all the adventures you want to have or all the stuff that you want to accumulate. And and that sort of sense of the next big thing or the next big purchase, I think that is endemic. Gen Z, but but Jonathan, that's our generation too. I think that's just in the air we breathe in American culture. And so that's just a regular conversation, not only with students and frankly with my children, 
and with the college students we work with in our church, that's a conversation my wife and I are having all the time because we see that in ourselves as well. And and so when it comes to those sorts of matters, we're we're calling upon all believers, but I'm especially calling upon the college students I interact with and, and my own children and their friends to be a counterculture for the common good and, and, and to give a clear public witness to what really matters by being willing to be different, to say no to too much of a good thing, and of course to say no to bad things as well. Yeah, and, and that's so helpful, right? And and what I love about that is, is the context of those conversations is relationship, but then you've also got to be able to know, okay, what aspect do I need to help encourage here or challenge or even equip with? You know, you know, one of the aspects you, you highlighted was that people are more than their sexual desires. Our culture would say, no, you, you are defined by your sexual desires. And we're like, no, we, that is not true. And you know, as Philippians says, 1, 6, you know, for he who began a good work, you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8, 1, there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so there's part of this truth that they have to understand, which they're part of that bigger story, and then it shapes how they care about things. And so I love how you're pulling those things together and maybe giving some people some ideas of some little ways that they can have better conversations with the Gen Zers in their life, with students or their own kids, as they talk about these areas around screens. We have time for probably one last question. Time flies and it's been so insightful, but you make this statement in your chapter that screens complicate our ability to discern truth from falsehood. Talk just a little bit about that and how that relates to Gen Z and discipleship. So I would agree with what you referenced from David Kinnaman earlier today, that we're always being discipled by these screens. And so there's a sense in which screens are a part of our real world, but there is another sense in which screens create an alternative to our real world. And so I think that there are so many students that for them, relationships are their virtual relationships. Experiences are their virtual experiences. And and the further along we go down that path, and the more and more we move away from an emphasis on us as embodied creatures who are meant to live in relationship with God and with each other, the more it's going to malform our spiritual formation. And so what we have to do as we're ministering to Generation Z or anyone who is just sort of absorbed in in the world of screens is to say to them that screens are tools, but screens are not the whole bag, if you will. Screens might be extensions of relationships, or they might be entryways into relationships, but relationships for us should not wholly equal uh, what's happening on screens. Screens might be a certain type of experience, a category of experience, or again, an extension or introduction into an experience. But when most of our meaningful experiences take place on screens, that's not drastically different than the characters in the movie Inception who sleep all day long so that they can live their dreams out and and love those dreams better than the real world. And and we don't want to create that sort of scenario. And so we have to be really, really careful and see this technology as a great gift, but uh, a gift that comes with great responsibilities. And then the more that we are able to teach Gen Z and everyone 
how to get the facts straight about that technology and how to frame that technology within the best story possible, the true story of the whole world, and to have their affections oriented in such a way that they can deal responsibly and Christianly with that technology. The more that technology is going to be a helpful part of life and not something that becomes an alternative to the real world and a, uh, a contrary form of discipleship that leads them away from spiritual flourishing rather deeper into spiritual flourishing. Yeah, and that that's so helpful, and it's a challenge for all of us, right? This is not something that, that we are immune to, um, you know, that we are not digital natives in that sense like Gen Z is, but we have to figure out how these devices are shaping us and blurring lines between perception and reality and what narratives we're even allowing ourselves to, to live into and, and care about. And, 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 and that's just part of what it means to be a disciple in the 21st century, right, in 2021. So again, my conversation today has been with Dr. Nathan Finn and his contribution to the brand new book, No Be Live, A 360-Degree Approach to Discipleship in a Post-Christian Era. Uh, edited by Dr. John Basie. You can find more about this book at impact360.org or anywhere you get your books. You can download digital versions as well. But want to encourage you to get that new book because there's a lot in there that will hopefully spur conversations um, in your family, um, in your school, in your church about how to disciple this next generation given the realities that have changed, given the assumptions that are just unquestionably different about this generation, how they see the world, how they've been formed and shaped than previous generations. And so if we want to be intentional about making disciples, we have to be intentional about understanding the culture that's shaping them. So again, check out the book, Nobi Live. And Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm grateful for the invitation, Jonathan. Thanks a bunch. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.